in the end, that's, I think, the highest calling is, you know, if you can inspire someone and help them be better, what greater reward for being a human is there? Welcome to 8020 Endurance, everyone. That was the familiar voice of Dean Karnazes, a runner who has inspired more runners than just about anyone I can name. Great to have him as a guest on this week's podcast. I'm Matt Fitzgerald. And I'm Hannah Hunstead. Yes, bulk of inspo in today's episode. His first book, Ultra Marathon Man, was a bit different than this newest book, Runner's High. He speaks mostly about how running affects his life and his interpersonal relationships. And I found that particularly interesting because most of the time you hear about how running changes that singular person, but it kind of has a ripple effect with other relationships as well. Yeah, it's cool. This one this one will be a lot of fun for people, both the book itself and this interview for folks who followed Dean for a long time because he's been out there and at it for a while and he's doing the same thing, just having amazing running adventures and writing about them. But yeah, he's also grown and aged. Part of what makes his book so much fun is his family. You know, he's got a family full of interesting characters and it's just... <laughs> It's a fun book in that regard, just to see where they are now. And I think Dean has grown more comfortable just inviting people way in. Um, mm-hmm. Just He's just got kind of more transparent, to use an overused word, in, in this one. And if you've never read one of Dean's books or heard him talk, this is a, a delightful way to get to know him. For sure. Yes, and speaking of inspiration, to kick off the new year, I want to remind everyone about our virtual conference, the Endurance Event. The first three hours are free. The $49.95 ticket comes with the entire conference recorded on demand so you can watch it later, and an 80-20 training plan. So if you're training for a full Ironman, let's say, that plan is upwards of $90. So can't really go wrong with purchasing a ticket to that kick off the new year in the right way and get a training plan along with it. Yeah, that was a good sell. If I weren't speaking at the event, I would register right now. So yeah, hope to see you there. It's gonna be it's gonna be an amazing happening. All right, enjoy the episode, everyone. That was fantastic. Dan. Dean Karnazes, welcome to the 8020 Endurance Podcast, where it's 80% runners high, 20% waiting to achieve the runner's high. How are you? <laughs> I, I'm waiting for the 20% because I haven't gone running yet today. But I'm, other than that, I'm really good. <laughs> Dean, I am particularly delighted to have you as a guest on this show. You and I go way back. Hannah was just asking me, like, how long have you known Dean? And I, I pegged it at 2006. I actually saw you once in 2005. You were giving a talk and it was like standing room only. Ultramarathon Man, I think, had recently come out. And I was just burning with jealousy. I'm like, who is this guy with a standing room only crowd? But then we got to know each other and fell in love. Um, I looked up, I have looked up to you and considered you a friend ever since. And a lover. Um, so yeah, just, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, great to have you on the show. We want to talk about your latest book, um, A Runner's High, um, which I enjoyed very much. I, you know, I, I've read all of your books and. To me, tell me if I'm wrong. To me, this one felt like your most personal and introspective. You know, did do you agree with that? And if so, you know, did you set out to write it with that intent? Ah, you're very perceptive, and I, I didn't actually set out to write it with that intent. But I think it kind of went in that direction, and 
maybe that's because uh, I'm, at the, I'm at that stage of my career and my life where <laughs> you start you start reflecting, you start looking at the back more than looking at what's ahead. But uh, it was kind of a sequel to my first book, uh, this this most recent book, and the Ultra Marathon Man was a coming of age book, kind of learning about these crazy uh, races called ultra marathons and. Uh, runner's high is like two and a half decades later, you know, what's going on with this guy? Is he still running? Does he still like to run? Uh, you know, where's his life? What has happened since that first ultra marathon? So it, it required some reflection. Yeah. Yeah. Out of all of the notes that I jotted down throughout reading your book, they were all very deep thoughts that you were having throughout the race. Right. And so I was interested in that question as well. If you set out with the intention to, to write the book that way. One thing that I thought was funny was when you met Anne Treason at an aid station and she asked what happened to you <laughs> and you responded with 24 years of living. I don't know if that sums up the book. Um, one theme of the book, I should say, but it seemed that way. And then another was your relationship with your parents and, and what it meant to you to have them at the race. And I think about that a lot, too. My parents are very active in, in coming to my triathlon races and, and things like that. It made me appreciate it a bit more. So thanks for that theme. But back to the first quote that I pulled out. This is a broad question, but what did those 24 years of living how did that change your running race from 24 years prior to the one that you did in this book? Yeah, I mean, on the surface, it was funny she said that because, um, you know, that was 24 years earlier is when I first was introduced to Ann Trayson. And she's she's a legend in ultra, ultra marathoning. I mean, she was so dominant in the sport and she was winning races outright. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. if she was in the race, it wasn't a question of who was going to win the wins, women's division. It was kind of a question of who's going to win the race. She was just that that strong. And a beast. Yeah. We were running the Western States 100-mile endurance run pretty hard. I mean, typically it was, you know, sub-20 hours. And, and that year that I described in the book, I, I come thrashing into this aid station that's, that's only like a marathon in. So it's only, <laughs> I, I think uh, it was... <laughs> Only Duncan a marathon Canyon's in. like 25 <laughs> miles in, and I'm already I'm already trashed though, and I'm thinking, oh, I got to go 75 more miles, and it just and she kind of said that you're like, what happened to you? And I'm like, mm, I think it's just 24 24 years of wear and tear. It used to seem so much easier back then to kind of just you know grunt your way through a hundred miler, and and nowadays it's it's like every hundred miler is kind of this epic odyssey of just <laughs> suffering. As someone who who kind of does some of the things, same things you do, run and write about running. I, I can't help but read your books from kind of a craft perspective. And one question I found myself uh, mulling over as I read this book was, did you run the race so that you could write the book or did you write the book so you could run the race? Because I've done this too. Like I have had experiences as a runner that I would not have had unless I was going to write about them. You know what I mean? Like I which I think is awesome. It's one of the, the great things about having that platform. Which is it for you? It was very much the, the latter. I, I, uh, I had no idea what I was going to write about when I kind of went to my agent and said, I want to write another book. So I, I hadn't thought about entering those races specifically to write about them. Uh, that's a good idea, though. I've never really taken that approach. <laughs> and I mean, even even with the you know the fifty marathon book, Matt, that you wrote, I never went into that with the intention of of doing a book. It was only afterward when my agent said, "Oh, this is going to be a great book. 
did I think, oh, she she was thinking that all along. That'd be you know a book coming uh-huh. from this where I, I wasn't thinking in those terms. I'm a memoirist, so a memoir is different than a biography or an autobiography in that a biography or an autobiography is someone's entire life. You know, a memoir is a, is a snapshot of someone's life. And if you think about this book, it really, it's a snapshot of three months. It starts with one race called the Bishop High Sierra Ultramarathon. And, you know, a couple months later is the Western States 100-mile endurance run. And, and that's kind of the start and the end of the book. There are reflections, you know, there, there are stories that I tell looking back, like, you know, running into the White House and, you know, running across the, the Silk Road in Central Asia. But I just, I, I kind of plugged those in as I was writing the book, as I was just trying to tell the story of what's happened to this guy over 25 years. And Hannah, you hit on this, no, no athlete, no runner, no triathlete is, a, is an island, right? When we get into our, our sport, it inevitably impacts everyone around us, our family, our friends, our colleagues, our coworkers. So I thought, you know, to tell an honest story, you need to talk about how your family's involved in this. And so that was the reason I spent a lot of time talking about my relationship with my parents and my son. Yeah, can you go into that a bit more? Because one thing that I have been considering, I mean, I am a single person living alone, 26 years old. Like, I have all the time in the world to just train as much as I want to, right? But I do sometimes think about, okay, eventually I want a family. My parents will be getting older. My brother, my niece and nephew, more people are involved in my life and being becoming a lot more important and will be more important as I get older. What has it been like balancing training in those times where you have other things to prioritize as well? And what's been the biggest takeaway or learning lesson from that? <laughs> I think uh, the biggest takeaway is, is something I write in the book. You know, in, in school, uh, you get the lesson and then you take the test. In parenting, you take the test and then you get the lesson. So, <laughs> you know, in hindsight, I certainly would have done things differently. And I made what I think are mistakes along the way. Uh, you know, and I, I've learned, I have some minor regrets, no big regrets, but. I wasn't that available for my kids when I was when they were younger. I mean, I was I was globe trotting. I was on the road sometimes 250 days a year, going to all these events in exotic places. And a lot of times I was I was taking my family, so they were beneficiaries as well. Like my kids, I think I've been on five continents now, so they've you know they've traveled a lot with me. Uh, but at other times I, I wasn't there for every soccer match and every birthday. Uh, I tried to be, but I, I missed some of those, and I think maybe that was not such a great thing. And I also talk about having some guilt nowadays when my kids were younger, thinking, ah, man, you know, I've got to go to the soccer game when I really want to, I really need to do this long training run and, and feeling kind of upset, like, ah, I, I got to go watch this soccer game when I should be doing this training run. And, and now, you know, a couple decades later, uh, I, I look back at how selfish that was. And I write about that in the book. And it wasn't easy to write about that. I mean, no one likes to admit their mistakes, mm-hmm. but I thought it was kind of just an honest portrayal of, of how I've lived my life. Mm-hmm. What's the, like the cost-benefit analysis of that though, right? Because to be a really solid parent, do you think that you have to be present 100% of the time and lose that piece of your identity to do so? And we don't have to go down this no, path no, too, you're, too much. No, you're really sh- I mean, yeah, <laughs> no. That's a, you're sharp. I, I like where you're taking this. I'm, <laughs> One thing I, I learned is that it's not the quantity of a relationship that matters, it's the quality. So um, mm-hmm. I think sometimes when you spend too much time with someone, that's almost a bad thing. <laughs> uh, 
So, you know, yeah. like when I, when I was around my kids, we had, we really enjoyed each other's company. Like, you know, we, we didn't have distractions. Like I, I wasn't there that long and we, we made the best of it and we always had a really good time. So, uh, to your point, I, I, that's something I, I learned as a parent is it's quality, not quantity. And, you know, my kids are, people always say, you know, your kids athletes or they runners, they both love to run, but they, they don't compete. They're not competitive. They just enjoy everything that, that running does for us, like the runner's high, like the, you know, clearing your mind, uh, all, all that sort of stuff, you know, motion stirs emotion. So uh, they're, they're both runners, not big runners, but runners. And my daughter is the same age as you. Some of my favorite parts of the book were scenes of you interacting with, with your family. In fact, probably actually my, my favorite scene is the, the evening before Western States when you're hanging out with your parents in, in the RV. It's just it's so well done. It would work well in a, in a film. You know, it's like one scene, but you see your dad's personality, your mom's personality, and your dynamic with them is, is completely encapsulated in, in those moments with like the three-day-old burrito and, <laughs> and the, the glove compartment that contains like as much stuff as Doctor Who had in his TARDIS. You know, just like how can something so small hold so much? But, you know, another craft question, because it can be really tricky writing about real living people because they don't control the narrative and, and you do, and, but it's out there in the public. Um, uh, tell me, like, how you approach that stuff, especially when you're portraying conflict or, or when, when your internal dialogue is maybe critical of your son or your daughter or, or your wife. Like, how do you negotiate that as, as a writer and someone who's related to and loves the people you're, you're writing about. And I guess, how do they feel about it? Uh, you know, thankfully, my, my parents are colorful characters, <laughs> as you as you picked up on. So I, <laughs> I don't need to make up a lot. I don't need to embellish too much with no. those two characters. But we all see people differently, right? I mean, you know how that is. I mean, uh, we, we have different viewpoints of uh, people and certain people uh, that we love, others hate. <laughs> and so I tried to describe, you know, my feelings towards these individuals and how I saw them in my life. And there's, you know, I, I say with my parents, their match was made in heaven, but so was thunder and lightning. So <laughs> they get after each other. And it's kind of fun to watch that as well. You know, after, after being married for nearly 60 years, I think they've kind of got a system worked out between the two. But it, it, they still sometimes act like they're in their 20s just having a, a brawl. <laughs> and so... <laughs> To your point, Matt, I mean, choosing what to write about is, is, it's kind of the, it's at the author's discretion. And I think a good writer kind of knows what makes good storytelling and what doesn't, what to include and what not to include. I don't consider myself a good writer. I mean, I'm still working on the craft. I, I don't think anyone can ever be a perfect writer, but I think I'm, I'm learning how to tell a story a little bit better and how to engage a reader. Another scene that I really liked that probably could have been in a movie is when you showed them how to use Find My Friends. <laughs> and your dad was like, the dot is not moving. <laughs> You're like, he's sleeping. <laughs> my, my grandson's dead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I can imagine the panic. Um, I, yeah, I enjoyed that moment. To pivot into a more selfish question for, for me, as someone who's just dipping into their running journey. I grew up as a swimmer and have been doing triathlon for about two years now, but training for marathon right now. Do you have any advice? Another blanket question. Yeah. Another, 
you can answer this any way you want. Well, I mean, your co-host is probably the right one to to address that question. I no. mean, Matt. I mean, Matt has coached so many people, and he's he's you know he through experience, he probably has a lot of things he could he could advise you on. Uh, I've I've heard all of it already. I want I want your advice, Steve. I think my <laughs> advice is you know you probably you seem very competitive, and you probably have a time goal. And I I would say you know when you're in that starting corral, just have one commitment, and that is look I'm I'm going to give it my best. Like, I'm gonna, I'm not going to leave anything on this course. This is going to be my best effort, and that way there's no way you can fail. I mean even if you don't hit your time goal, and even if you've got to walk. If you give it your all and you just know that in your heart of heart, you're going to become a champion. So that would be my advice is, is just be, be the best you can be. I mean, obviously, you know, you got to pay your dues. You got to do the training. But come race day, just give it your all. Good advice. That's, uh, that, that's not just good advice. That's very Dean advice. <laughs> um, actually, what, one of the questions I had that I had prepared for you was just to, to get at exactly this, you know, as I know you, Dean, your idea of hell would be to come on a podcast and be forced to give tips on running oh, no. for an hour. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, what have I, I mean, done? I mean, you you love running, but you're not the tips guy. Like you you are into the experience of the sport, you know, the soul of the sport. But you are incredibly experienced, and you've also you've you know achieved a lot that just looks great on a resume like as a runner but how do you feel about that stuff because i imagine a lot of people want tips from you and yet that's probably not how you see your own role in the sport i'm getting better at it matt you you've actually you've had a profound influence on me because i've kind of shifted my paradigm i see that you help people and i mean in the end that's i think the highest calling is you know if you can inspire someone and help them be better what greater reward for being a human is there? So I've kind of taken that approach and changed my mindset on it all, and I'm 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 much more willing to uh, dispense uh, tips and advice if I can help someone. And some of the things I've told people, I, I can't believe that other people tell me, "Oh yeah, you told you know this person this, and they told me this, and it really helped me get through a race." I mean, just. Things that are so intuitive to me, like during my first ultra marathon, when things get tough, what do, what do I do and what do I don't do? And the one thing that's just so simple I tell people is um, ne- never drop out at an aid station. And it's such a typical cycle you get into when you're doing a long race and you just and the wheels are coming off. You just start in your head saying, I'm done. And when I get to the next aid station, I'm pulling my number and, and that's it. I'll try again. And so many times that happens, and 20 minutes later, you're in your crew car, you've turned in your number, you've DNF'd, and you're driving back to the hotel, and you're like, God, why did I do that? I feel, I feel good now. <laughs> so I just tell people, when you get to the aid station, when you're spent, just chill. I mean, sit down, have some food, have something to drink, just chill out. I mean, it's, it's an ultra marathon. It's not a, it's, it's, it's not a, a 10K or a 100-meter dash. I mean, you've got a lot of time, so... And once you chill, you know, once you get some food in you, get up and just walk out of the aid station. Don't, you don't even have to run. Just start walking and, and let your body kind of come back to life. And inevitably what happens is you get a mile or two from the aid station and you start thinking, ah, shh, there's no way I'm turning around now. So you just start keep, you right. just keep going and it all works out. <laughs> 
And I mean, that's to me, it just seems so intuitive. But I, you know, I said that to somebody who's like, wow, that's amazing. I, I'm gonna, I, I'll never forget that. And I've heard it repeated many, many times. Yeah, I wish you would, I wish you had told me that like two years ago before <laughs> I, de- I, I quit in an, at an aid station in the Black Canyon uh, 100K. Uh, and oh man, we should have talked before that one. <laughs> oh, well. Yeah, that just goes to show you that, you know, something that you're thinking about during really, really hard times in, in your life, specifically endurance sports, right? Like what you say in your head might not ever come up in someone else's head and it might just be mind blowing, but that is good advice. Yeah. I mean, the other thing I tell people is, you know, when they say when, you know, what do you think about when, when things get really tough and I tell them, don't think, I mean, thinking is the problem. <laughs> don't, don't think. It's so true. Just be in the present moment of time, so just true. be in the here and now uh, so don't reflect on the past. You know, don't think about the future. Don't think how far the next aid station is. Don't think how far you've got to go to the finish. Just take your next step to the best of your ability and just say, I'm going to take my next step to the best of my ability and my next step to the best of my ability and keep the focus in the present here and now. And it's amazing what you can get through. And I mean, I've been in that state for like sometimes an hour or two hours where I'm just thinking about, I'm forcing my mind using discipline actually not to think about anything except my next step and just bringing it back to my next step. And you can get through some really tough moments if you can just be in the here and now. For a guy that's not a tips guy, you just, you've just dished out some <laughs> really good tips. <laughs> but to bring up a topic that Matt and I often discuss on every episode, imposter syndrome, I'm curious to, to know your experience with that, if you ever dealt with it. And when you did, when was it? Was it during some time you had to give advice? I suffer from imposter syndrome massively. And I, I mean, I've got... I don't even call it a trophy room. I've just got like this room downstairs where I kind of put all my stuff and it's just it's just overflowing with with things. I mean, there's so many trophies I have and medals and you know it, it's insane all this stuff and I walk in there and, I'm, and I don't even I don't even think it's me. I'm like where did all this stuff come from? Like who who how is this all here and how many people like have acquired this? It's just crazy. So I've never been able to accept any success that I've had I've always felt like ah, you know you're really not that good and you could be better and uh, you know you, you didn't do this and you didn't do that and when when people give me praise and they, oh I love your book I'm like ah god I'm not a very good writer like I, I've got so much to learn <laughs> so I I've, I've never really felt um, impressed by it all I've never it, it just doesn't seem like me like I, I just feel like I'm just like this simple guy <laughs> Just really this simple child and doesn't deserve all this stuff. What's it going to take for you to think <laughs> that you deserve all this success? <laughs> I don't know. I don't, that's a really good question. I think I, maybe I'm just a simpleton. I, I mean, I'm never happier than when I'm just running. So when I don't, when I'm not surrounded by anything, when I just kind of am on a trail by myself, I mean, I'm very comfortable by myself. I'm almost a hermit in, in some ways. And I just feel like that's when I'm most complete. And, and there's really, there's no recognition. There's nothing there. It's just, it's just me uh, alone in, in, you know, in, in the wilderness. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, even when I, I got the, uh, I won the um, uh, President's Council on uh, Sports, uh, Fitness and Nutrition Lifetime Achievement Award. And I thought, 
hold it. it. Like that's recognized my whole life. And I thought, how did I like Jack LaLanne has this and Arnold Schwarzenegger, like Dean Carnassus doesn't have, <laughs> he's not like worthy of a lifetime achievement award. So I don't know when I'll finally ex- accept it. We'll have to have you on the podcast again. If you <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what, as a reader, I, I don't, I don't want that to change though, because it's part of what allows readers to relate to you. The scene in the book when you, uh, when you run into the White House, literally run into the White House and end up hanging out with Michelle Obama. The way you narrate that experience, it's like, that's exactly how I would be feeling if I had that experience. I, I wouldn't be marching in like I own the joint, like, oh yeah, this is all my due because I'm Matt Fitzgerald. No, I'd be like, pinch me. <laughs> so yeah, there's this everyman quality uh, to you, and uh, I, I wouldn't want you to lose that. <laughs> Thank you, Matt. <laughs> I'm glad we think alike. And I, I don't, and I don't think I'm unique in that in that way. I mean, I read about a lot of people that have imposter syndrome, and I always, when I read about these famous people with imposter syndrome, I always think they're just making that up. Like they, they really don't think they're not who they are. <laughs> they can't, like that person right. can't possibly think they're not who they are. I mean. But you, you see it quite often with, with like world leaders. It's, it's quite amazing to me. Yeah, as we've learned, I mean, every, I think we've almost talked about this with every guest we've had on, and everyone deals with it at some amount, at some point in their life. So yeah, interesting topic. I'd love to, to circle back to talking about how you describe running in this book, how it's more of like an art form to you. Can you dive a little bit deeper into that running is more about speed and ranking but the best runner wasn't the one defined as the fastest runner racing is a sport their running was more akin to art yeah so i mean i think i'm talking about some other people in the sport that i admire that are kind of free Mm -hmm. thinkers and and kind of view running as beyond the race course if you will i mean i think when people hear about a runner and so many runners they quantify running Uh, every run has got to be measured and every race has got to be like that's how you define who you are as a racer, not as a runner. And even it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's synonymous when we say who, who's the best runner, we obviously think who's the fastest runner and is, is best and fastest necessarily the same. If you define the best runner as the one who maybe derives the most pleasure out of, out of their craft, out of running, you'd look at things differently. I, I know who the fastest runners are, but I thought it was important <laughs> to also point out who I think in a lot of ways are the best runners. And these are people that just run for the love of running, for nothing more. I mean, I think running can be worthwhile in itself. It can be play, if you will. And to a lot of runners, that's a very foreign concept. I mean, every, every run is about something. <laughs> you know, it's about your training program or you know, your preparation for the race. And, and, and then your race is all about what your time was. And it, it's, it's funny because culturally, when I travel a lot, different cultures view running very differently. I mean, some are very competitive. And with the race culture, it's the same sort of way. I mean, if you do, if you run like the Chicago Marathon, it's pretty chill. Like people see you and like, ah, how's it going? Like, this is great. This can be another great Chicago Marathon. You know, if you go to Boston, you see people you haven't seen in a long time. The first thing they say is, oh, what's your goal time? All they want to know about is like, you know, what's your time goal? (laughs) So it's, Mm -hmm. uh, it's just, it's just culture. I think running is very diverse in that regard. And the other thing that I think gets lost a lot on, on people like us that are so immersed in running and the running industry is that most runners have never run a race. 
I think the latest statistics I saw that in in uh, 2020 there were 50, I think 50.7 million people that said they were a runner, and most of those, I think there's only like 10 or 12 million people that have done a race. So the vast majority of people that run have never done a 5K. They've never done a turkey trot. They've never done anything. They just run around the, the block because they find some benefit to running. And the other thing that I thought was really interesting is when they survey those people, uh, most people get into running for a reason. And the main reason they get into running is weight loss. So that's the main driver for someone to start running. But then when they're asked, why do you still run? And this is after like a year or so of running. If they stick with it, they say, because I enjoy it. So their, their, their thoughts on running change as well. One part of the book that really jumped out at me, uh, Hannah probably knows what's coming here, is uh, when you talk about how much of your identity is tied up in running and, and being a runner. And I, I think you literally say that you would cease to exist if, if you stopped running. And you know maybe you're exaggerating to make a point, but your point was made, you know, that it's super important to you. And, and I was reading this as someone who used to feel exactly that way. And then I got COVID and then I got long COVID and I can't run anymore. You know, I haven't run in, uh, since January. Um, so like I'm, I'm that guy, I haven't ceased to exist, but sometimes I feel like it. So I wanted to kind of like press you on that. I drew a short straw. What if you had drawn that exact same short straw and you hadn't been able to run since January, and it was really doubtful whether you would ever be able to, to run again. Like, how do you feel you would be coping with that? Yeah, well, I mean, Matt, that's why I first reached out to you when, you know, whenever that was, a year ago, when, when I read about your symptoms, the long-haul symptoms, I was so curious. Like, I mean, because when I read your account, you literally said, I cannot run. And I thought, okay, that means, you know, he can't run a, a full marathon. He's just running half marathons now. But when you just said, no, I, I like, I, I, I get winded just, you know, running down the driveway, I thought that this can't be true. And then when you kind of confirmed it, you're like, no, this, this is the real deal. I don't even know, like, I, I, I can't even formulate where to begin with that, like how, how you must feel. I, I can't imagine not being able to run, Matt. And as you know, I've never, you know, I've never had a running injury. So I've never had an overuse injury. I've never had anything stop me from running. And I just, I can't, I really can't forecast. I can't. I. I just can't project. You know, on this hypothetical, what what would happen to me if I couldn't run? I don't know. <laughs> I'm a little concerned about it because, mm -hmm. you know, at some point maybe I will get injured and I'll have to deal with that and those emotions. But I mean, you you've kind of stayed close to running because obviously you're you're so well recognized in the running industry in the running world. But not being able to run. I mean, I don't. I don't know how you're doing it. I. I really don't. Well, you kind of have to. <laughs> Give no choice, yeah. Because, yeah, I mean, that's no the option. thing. Yeah, I'm still alive. But, well, tell me this. I mean, because you did live through the, the, the pandemic, which must have cramped your style. And I actually remember thinking about, like, there were certain people, like, the real heat of the, the initial lockdown, there were certain people who came to mind, and I just thought, oh, I, I really feel for this person. In some cases, it was, like, someone who's just super outgoing and gregarious, and they just always need to be around people, and I'd be like, oh, my heart bleeds for that person. And then you, who are just an inveterate globetrotter, like, you love to go places and be on the move. I thought, that's got to suck for Dean. So, 
you, you were able to run still, which is a blessing. But I mean, was was that your experience of, of the lockdown that kind of cramped your style? Yeah, I mean, it, it was t- it's still tough for me. My, my books are so dependent on me going to race expos and giving talks and doing book signings. I mean, that's how you first met me, right, Matt? Um, you saw me at a at a yep. at a talk. And yep. that's kind of like the, the blocking and tackling of, of launching a, one of my books. And that was, you know, that that's obviously was taken away. And, you know, I mean, I've done Zoom book clubs and so forth. And it's just it's not the same at all. So it, it, it really was quite challenging. I mean, not only from a financial standpoint, but the other thing is I so much use running as kind of the yin and yang of, of doing those sort of book talks and book signings because I'm very much an introvert and I'm you know most comfortable by myself. So getting in front of an audience and signing books for hours is, is really taxing, like emotionally. I really need some decompression. And I counted on running just to decompress. But all of a sudden, uh, all I had was running. <laughs> there, there, right. I, there, was no, there was no reason to decompress because I wasn't doing these things. You know, maybe a, a Zoom call, I'd have to go for a run to decompress. And it's, it, running kind of started shifting in, in its meaning in a way. And it, it, was, it was interesting to not need to run to decompress. And all of a sudden, I'm like, well, why do you need to run? So I really had to reestablish just the joy of running for running just because I love to run. But thankfully, things are opening back up. And I've, you know, I've been on the road now. Boy, I was living out of a suitcase for about two and a half months. I got home last week. But I went to Australia. And then I went to Greece for six weeks. And it felt really good. <laughs> it felt really good mm-hmm. to be back I'll out bet. there. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's interesting hearing about your relationship with running because I've always used it as well as a way to decompress or just I'm training for X event, so I have to. But when it comes down to it, I mean, in your answer, in your response to Matt saying that you don't even know what step one would be if you couldn't run anymore. I mean, it's in there. That joy for running is in there, right? But it kind of got lost in the in the pace of life with all the craziness and busyness, it sounds. Well, and, wait, and Hannah, I'm, I'm curious, what um, what marathon are you doing? Austin, Texas. Austin, okay. And that's in January? I'm trying to think it's when that is. It's in February 20th. Fe- okay. But who's counting? Yeah. <laughs> I hope Matt is training you. <laughs> he is. She's in good hands. And uh, that's it. Austin was tradition. It's a, it's a pretty big event. I wonder how it'll be this year. But I guess you have really no basis for comparison since you haven't done another marathon. That's correct. I definitely have a goal, but mm. no no way to compare it to, to really anything. I mean, and also, I've only done one half marathon, and it was eight years ago with no real training. Um, and so my best half marathon is the last part of uh, 70.3. So, yeah, it'll be a good, good check-in. Have you ever done a full Ironman? Only 70.3. Okay, all right. Mm-hmm. Only. <laughs> only <laughs> well, okay, look which is 99 percent more than anyone in any other one else does but you say only done a half yeah half iron man yeah but on this panel it, it it's only <laughs> fair enough dean i'm just kind of going point by point through a lot of the things i could deeply relate to in your latest book and another one of them and probably actually a number one i just love this theme of, of the book was the fear of losing relevance. Yeah, I just love how honest you were about that because maybe that's the kind of thing that another writer would keep hidden and not admit, you know, that they had that fear. 
but it's a real thing. And I think a lot of people deal with it. It's actually one thing I've struggled with since I kind of fell out of training and racing is will I become irrelevant? Because I didn't really think about it before, but I started to reflect on, no, I really kind of want that. Like, you know, I'm like, but is that shallow? And, and why do I want to be relevant? You know, just because I like attention or is it tied up in, in the need to feel like I'm contributing somehow, which seems less selfish. <laughs> but what, what was it for you? Why did you struggle with that? Why is it important for you, at least at, th at this stage still, to, to re remain quote unquote relevant? Uh, I think again, it's just tied to my identity as, as a runner and like knowing kind of my place in the running universe and how it's it's kind of shifted thankfully i still write books to keep my name out there but yeah obviously i'm i'm not ending up on podiums anymore i mean age group podiums but no one cares who's winning your age group except people in your age group <laughs> i've learned that right. yeah <laughs> so i just didn't want to fade away i still wanted to have a positive impact on people and i I still wanted people to say, hey, you inspired me to run my first marathon or my first ultra. And I, I didn't ever want to let that disappear and, and just fade into the background. And maybe it is selfish. I, I think less so in, in me. And it's just kind of my way of giving back to, to others. I don't know how else to, to give to others. And I think that uh, to me, I have a deep yearning, you know, to, 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 to give. And it's the way I best do it, I believe. So maybe that that's where those feelings come from and i and i just know that the landscape of ultra marathoning has changed dramatically but thankfully i've i've my name is still out there on the same token you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation that at this point in your life you're not so much looking forward as you are looking in the past but if you are to look forward what's <laughs> what's next for you what do you what do you see in the future Oh, I've got some. I've got some grand plans for. <laughs> oh, let's for, go! For, I knew there was going to be something. <laughs> oh, of course. <laughs> I've got something. I, I don't want to. I don't. I don't want to talk about it until I've got all, everything in place to do it. Okay. But I will tell you, it's it's never been done before, and it's not a marathon in every country of the world. It's it's something that I think is even a little grander than that. But to pull it off will require seven to eight months. It will be pretty intense, but it it's something unprecedented and something that from a runner's perspective will just make your jaw drop. And, and, you know, this is a lot of presumptions there. First, like I said, I can, I can actually pull it off with permitting and so forth and passports and all of that kind of thing. And the second is physically I can pull it off, but it'll be grand. Yeah. And it will be a book, Matt. How's that? Can you give us a little teaser? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it has to do with going from uh, two notable places on earth. Two quite notable okay. places on Earth. Yeah, that's a that's an appropriate teaser. I'll accept that. And we gotta, you guys gotta keep the podcast going because um, a couple of years from now, I want to come back on and say, okay, this is what it was, and I made it. <laughs> yes. Right on. Well, yeah, we can guarantee we'll keep keep a seat warm for you. Have we come up to our super deep closing question, Hannah? I think so. Okay. Send it. All right. This is one of our little gimmicks. <laughs> An informal gimmick is bringing up imposter syndrome with every guest, yes. and, but uh, a, a and long COVID. And, yeah, well. <laughs> anywho, we like to end each interview with a super deep closing question, which about half the time is not all that deep, and the other half is. So you can do with this one as you will. And again, it's another craft question. As a, as a fellow running writer, I can't help it. 
is it possible for a memoirist to be too honest? <laughs> that is a deep question. I thought you were going to ask me something like, is it acceptable to put pineapple on your pizza? <laughs> it's very well now i want to know the answer that's to a that. loaded question yeah. dude, I, I found that's very divisive because i i uh, i said one time i'm a big fan of hawaiian pizza hawaiian style and someone's like oh putting pineapple on pizza is like that's sacrilegious like the, the god is angry at you for that <laughs> like jesus okay it's just pineapple <laughs> so so we know the answer to the pineapple question yeah but, uh, stop yeah. buying your time dean <laughs> so is it is it possible for a memoirist to put too much pineapple on a pizza? No, it's not, uh, to, to to be too honest. I think the only sin in writing a memoir is boring your audience. So if you're cliche, if the honesty is not really some profound honesty, then I think that it's probably unnecessary. But if there's something that's kind of interesting and compelling, uh, then I think that you know, being too honest um, is, is a, it's a hook in a way. It's a literary hook and it gets the juices flowing in the reader. And I think that to me, that's, that's the most important thing is my books are in service to my readers. I want them to have some literary pleasure after they read my books. I want it to be kind of propulsive and enjoyable. So I hope I didn't cross that line and that's why you're asking the question. But, um, I, and I hope that answer is, is not too uh, flowery, but uh, I think for some people, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's probably not wise to be too honest just because it's something that's so commonplace. But if, you know, if you're a psycho killer of some sort, you ought to talk about it because we find it fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you have it. Psycho killers all around. It's, ha- it's Halloween, right? <laughs> a call to action. <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking some time out of your day, Dean, to chat with us. I really enjoyed your book again, and we'll make sure to link all of your books, all of your information in the show notes so people can learn more about you if they, if they didn't know already. But thanks again. It was great catching up with you guys, and um, good luck in Austin, and uh, I'll be cheering oh, for you. Thank you so much. All right. Hoping everyone enjoyed that conversation with Dean. All of his information will be linked in the show notes. Definitely check out his newest book, but also his first book, Ultra Marathon Man, is kind of how he got started. So check both of those out. Our segment, What's Your Jam? Our weekly segment, kind of new, but I have to do a better sell this week because <laughs> last week I totally botched it. And then you came up with this very deep explanation of why you picked your song. So... <laughs> Mine is not deep, but it'll be better than last week. It's Jungle by Petite Biscuit. I was on the trainer last night. Shin splints have kept me on the bike for some of my workouts for marathon training, but that allows me to turn up the speaker in my apartment and listen to music a bit louder than I do when I run, so that's been fun. But yeah, that one came up on shuffle, and I was like, dang, this is a good one to just kind of like slow grind, push some watts to. So that's my pick for the week. All right. Yes, you did a much better job selling that that particular <laughs> track. So well done. I'm going with Yola's Stand For Myself this week. I discovered her this summer and she's just an interesting throwback. Like she's from the UK. I guess she'd call her a soul in the soul genre. She's very now, but she has a, kind of like a Gladys Knight, a little bit of that breathiness in her voice. She can blow, but there's that kind of like a little bit of that dry raspy <laughs> quality that Reminds me a bit of Gladys Knight and Stand For Myself. 
oh man, there's a, there's, I won't even have to, I don't even have to timestamp it for you. There's a, listen to that song, turn it up loud. And there's a, a part of that song that just is goose flesh raising where it all comes together, crescendos, and it will have you speaking in tongues, I swear. So check out <laughs> Yola's Stand For Myself. Wow, once again, I'm convinced. <laughs> once again, I'm going right to the Spotify and listening to it. You crush it every week. It's very impressive. <laughs> yeah, well, I have this funny thing where I know why I like songs I like. <laughs> okay. We'll talk to you guys next week. <laughs> 